everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with an all-new episode, this time coming from Independence, Missouri. So we're going Midwest. Reminds me of the Oregon Trail. Possibly. (laughs) Before we get started, I do have a little bit of crime news update. The Sheila Keen Warren case out of Wellington, Florida. That is the killer clown case. It is to go to trial here. I want to say April, May will be covered by Court TV. I guess when they're done covering the Alex Murdoch case. And... I saw the Alex Murdoch case on a TV at an antique store while I was antique shopping. Yeah, I think there's a couple national news programs that are covering it. You can't get away from it if you want to. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) So the news is her defense has asked the judge to dismiss the case in its entirety. Oh. Saying they really can't mount a defense for her or an appropriate defense, I think, because some of the witnesses, one, the prosecution waited too long to bring charges against her and they did that purposely. Mm. And that some of the witnesses have, you know, their memories fade. It's almost been May will be 33 years since Marlene Warren was shot in her face by this killer clown. And they're saying that, you know, memories fade and some of the witnesses are dead. So they have asked for dismissal. The prosecution has not commented on that yet, though, and the judge has not made a decision. So stay tuned. The other bit of information comes from the Sophia Tuscon de Plantier case out of West Cork, Ireland. Just so you're aware, you might have read this, but maybe I do because I get Google alerts. But Ian Bailey, the Prime suspect in her murder now has his own podcast. Oh, so he claims he is no longer a suspect. I have not read that anywhere else than there. (laughs) And his interview, he gave newspapers promoting his podcast. Okay, so you can just say whatever you want on a podcast. And I guess that's why it's important to have resources and check your facts. Yes. And guys, when we do a case, just so you know, we do have resources. We do fact check. And you can find all of those resources on our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. And sometimes, too, if you want to take a deeper dive, especially on the unsolved cases or where we start going on a tangent and Trish says, no, 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 keep it to 30 or 40 minutes. <laughs> we, That'd be great. We have a lot of resources on the website that you can take a deeper dive if, if something uh, triggered your interest and you want to look into it more. We have those on the website. And also on the website, you can reach out to us on our contact us link there. You can fill out the form, send us a note, tell us about yourself, where you're listening from, your favorite cases, maybe some cases you want us to cover or leave us a review on any of those apps or subscribe or share it with a friend. I recently shared criminal discourse with a coworker who told me how much she's been enjoying catching up on old episodes. So So we are going to get started here. And we're going, like I said, to Independence, Missouri. It is the fifth largest city in the state located in Jackson County. Independence is known as the Queen City of the Trails, as it was the point of departure for those headed west who were either using the California, the Oregon, or the Santa Fe Trail. So there you go. That's why you think of that. I wasn't far off. No. It was named after the Declaration of Independence, which I did not realize, and was founded in 1827. It is also home to the Temple Lot, a temple constructed in 1831 as part of the Latter-day Saint movement. On March 19, 1960, Sharon Kenny, the 20-year-old wife of James Kenny, age 26, was in the bathroom of their ranch-style home when she heard her two-year-old daughter, Dana, say, How does this thing work, Daddy? 
How does it work? Then a gunshot rang out, coming from the direction of the couple's bedroom. James had been lying down prior to going to work. He worked the night shift at an electronics firm. And when Sharon entered the bedroom, she found Dana standing next to the bed. Now, I've read two versions where the gun was. One was in Dana's hand and the other was right beside Dana on the floor. Sharon also discovered her husband's high standard 22 caliber pistol either on the floor or in Dana's hands, like I said. Now on the bed, James was bleeding from a gunshot wound to the back of his head. Sharon called the police, who soon arrived along with ambulance services, but James would die en route to the hospital. So a little bit about Sharon Kenny. She was born on November 30th, 1939 in Independence to Eugene and Doris Hall. At one point, the family had moved to Washington, the state, for a few years when Sharon was in junior high school. But they moved back when Sharon was around 15 years old. So I think that puts her around sophomore, freshman, sophomore year of high school. Mm -hmm. It was during the summer of 1956 when the then 16-year-old Sharon met 22-year-old James Kinney at a church social. James was attending BYU or Brigham Young University and the two dated until he left to go back to school in the fall. So not very long. Yeah. So it was that fall that Sharon wrote a letter to James telling him she was pregnant. And I was ready to defend, hey, it was different times, 16, they were waiting, they were, no, okay, she's already pregnant. All right. Though she claims she's pregnant. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So James left school and returned to Independence and the couple married on October 18th, 1956. Again, a different time, so it was very quick. But he's going to BYU, so he's also Mormon, right? Yes. Okay, put a pin in that. So interestingly, when the couple filled out their marriage license, they put her age down as 18 and that she was a widow. What? What? (laughs) That is a mystery because there is no explanation as to why they check that box. Sharon claimed that she had been married to a man when she lived in Washington State and that he later died in a car accident. Now, this would have been, again, when she was younger than 15 years old. Again, different time, different different states had different ages you could legally marry. Everything I researched and read, nothing explained why they checked that box that she was widow. At best, that's a flair for the dramatic. At worst, that's a huge red flag. Well, yeah. <laughs> the following year, the young couple would be married in a more formal wedding held at the Salt Lake Temple in Salt Lake City, Utah. This was after Sharon had finished her conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The couple then moved to Provo, Utah, where James again started up his studies at BYU. But the couple would only stay there until the end of the fall semester, and they would find themselves back in independence. Now, Sharon reported to James that she had unfortunately had a miscarriage, Mm. but soon became pregnant with the couple's first child, Dana born in the fall of 1957. James began working the night shift for Benix Aviation as an electrical engineer. And Sharon, to make extra money, took on babysitting jobs and worked in various retail stores. Now, it was while James was working and then sleeping during the day that Sharon filled her time with a lot of shopping. It is said she liked to spend money on the finer quality items, and I think she liked to spend money in general. I'm thinking here, you know, you're having to take babysitting jobs back in the 50s and 60s to make ends meet. Your husband's work, like, you shouldn't. Okay, I'm doing all the puzzling in my head here. <laughs> she is also said to have wanted to spend her time with various men. 
outside of her husband. One of those men was an old high school flame, James Boldus, who was married and working as a service station attendant. So James and Sharon would go on to have a second child named Troy, and the couple moved into a ranch-style home they had built at 17009 East 26th Terrace, and this was in Independence. So even with two small children in home, Sharon continued her extramarital affair with Boltus, and I believe other men in addition to him. So by early 1960, James believed Sharon was cheating on him, and he was correct, and he wanted a divorce. Now, there was also the issue of her lavish spending habits. So there was a lot of, I think, like you said, this was a different time period, but she was spending money they didn't have. And I believe he also found out that she was responsible, I think, for paying some of the bills and she wasn't paying the bills. So financial strain, extramarital affairs, this is all leading to divorce. So James tried to keep his marriage intact. But on March 18th, 1960, he had finally had enough. And he went to talk to his parents and he told them Sharon agreed to a divorce, but only if he allowed her to keep the house, gave her custody only of their daughter. She didn't ask for Troy, the boy, and paid her a thousand dollars a month alimony. Thousand dollars? I know. For, I thought that was a lot for back, that back then. 1960? I was like, hmm. Plus the house and the daughter. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so James's parents, who were devout Mormons, tried to talk him out of the divorce, pleading with him to stay in the marriage. Now, perhaps if they knew that Sharon was also looking for a way out of the marriage, they might have consented, especially if they'd known her way was a more permanent solution. She had offered her lover, Boltitz, $1,000 to kill James or to find somebody else who would do the job. We're going to go back to the the investigation into James's death. So once Sharon told police what had happened, they began their investigation, not quite believing that this child could have shot her father. Because I've read Dana was anywhere for between two and two and a half at the time of this shooting. They would be disappointed if they hoped to get any fingerprints off the firearm. The pistol had oil all over its grip, making it impossible to lift any prints, which makes you wonder how a little two, two and a half year old would be able to hold a weapon, let alone fire it if it's so slippy. The pressure that it would take. So the police did not perform any gunshot residue tests on either Dana or Sharon. They did, however, talk to family members and neighbors of the Kennys. And investigators discovered that James would often leave his firearms around the home and let Dana play with them. (sighs) James. Different time. (sighs) The police decided to test if Dana was able to pull a trigger on a similar gun. And she was able to. So with no other evidence, James Kinney's death was ruled an accidental homicide. Now, Sharon asked if she could get her husband's gun back, but the police would not return it and kept it in evidence, perhaps hoping that someday they would have the evidence to charge Sharon with her husband's murder. Now, what police would later find out is that Sharon had one of her male friends secretly buy her another 22 caliber pistol. This friend had initially registered the gun in Sharon's name, But once she found out, she asked him to re-register the gun under any other name but hers. I don't care whose, just not mine. Just not mine. So after James's funeral, Sharon collected on his life insurance policy valued at $29,000. Now in today's money, that equals, I think, close to a little under $300,000. Did Sharon save that money? (laughs) Heck to the no. No. She went out and bought a brand new Ford Thunderbird convertible at a local car dealership. That is where she met car salesman Walter Jones on April 18th, 1960. The two soon began a sexual 
sexual relationship soon after. Keep in mind, she's still very young. And this time frame is you think, oh, this is over years. Keep in mind, this is not years. This is months. She does not miss an opportunity. It presents itself. She takes it. She goes. Boom, 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 boom. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Her husband dies in March. She's like 21 right now. Oh, yeah. She's still very young. <laughs> That's also something to keep in mind through this episode. So at the time, Walter was married to his high school sweetheart, Patricia, and she was about 23 years of age. So another married man, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So Patricia Jones was one of six children from St. Joseph's, Missouri. After graduating from Benton High School, the couple had married. So they were high school sweethearts. Walter enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, and the couple relocated to the West Coast for a time. Now, upon Walter's discharge, the Joneses settled in Independence with Walter working in car sales and Patricia as a file clerk for the Internal Revenue Service. The couple had two children, Jerry, age three, and Cindy, age two. Now, like Sharon, Walter had a wandering eye and was always looking for a good time. His good time this time was with Sharon Kenny. For Walter, it was all about fun. But for Sharon, she was looking for a more long-term commitment. To be clear, shame on both of them. Shame on you, Walter. But well, just Sharon, wait. Put a pen in that. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so on May 25th, 1960, Sharon returned from a trip to Washington State after a family visit to inform Walter she was pregnant and she was expecting him to marry her. Now, Walter surprised her, though, by instead ending their relationship. So Sharon did not go quietly and instead placed a call to Patricia's work the next day, telling her that Walter was having an affair with her sister. Whoa. Sharon didn't have a sister. She arranged to meet with Patricia later that day to talk about the matter further. Now, Patricia Jones never returned home that night. Walter, not knowing what happened to her, started calling around friends and co-workers. And this is when he found out that she had received a call at work from an unnamed woman who wanted to meet up with her. Patricia had asked the carpool driver to drop her off at a street corner in Independence, which he did. The other passengers in the car had seen a woman waiting for Patricia in another vehicle, and they didn't recognize her. When they described this mystery woman, however, Walter knew precisely who she was. Walter called Sharon, confronting her, asking her where Patricia was. Sharon told him that, yeah, I called her at work. And yes, I met up with her later to talk about their affair. However, she claimed she dropped Patricia off near the house. The last time she saw Patricia, she was talking to a man in a green 1957 Ford. So right after that conversation, Sharon contacted Boltitz, her old high school flame slash lover, whom she still kept in touch with. And she asked him to drive her around to help locate Patricia. So the couple drove around for hours and it was shortly before midnight that Sharon suggested going to a secluded area known for being a lover's lane. And this was about a mile outside of Independence. The couple pulled in and their headlights illuminated a body not far off the road. Sharon told Boltus to get out and check it out, and it was the deceased body of a woman. Boltus went to notify authorities, with Sharon asking him to leave her name out of it. The plan didn't last long, however, when police started asking him why he was hanging out at a lover's lane at midnight all alone. Right. So not liking that he was being looked at as a suspect, he told them that, well, I wasn't alone. I was with Sharon Kenny, who asked him to help her search and suggested looking in that location. Now, keep in mind that the police know this woman because they just were investigating her, what, two months previously? Right. 21-year-olds aren't the most intelligent sometimes when it comes to these situations. 
Patricia Jones had been shot four times with a 22 caliber pistol. The fatal wound was to her head, with the bullet entering near her mouth in what would be described as an upward trajectory. She also suffered a through-and-through shot to her abdomen and two penetrating shots to her shoulders. Powder burns would be found on the hemline of her yellow skirt that had been pulled up to her waist. Now, police believe this was to make it look like she had been a victim of a sexual assault, but there was no indication she had been sexually assaulted. Her approximate time of death was around 9 p.m. on the 27th, and Patricia Jones would be buried on May 31st, 1960. So very quick turnaround there. On May 28th, police brought Sharon Boltitz and Walter in for further questioning. Now, both Boltitz and Walter told the police that they had both, quote unquote, dated Sharon, perhaps simultaneously. Both Boltus and Walter agreed to take polygraph tests, which indicated they showed no deception in their statements. Sharon also gave an oral statement, but when asked to sign a written one, she declined. She also declined to participate in a polygraph examination, which is her right. Mm -hmm. So while police were questioning the trio, another unit was investigating the crime scene. They were searching for a murder weapon and any bullets that had passed through Patricia's body. They even deployed a local Boy Scout troop to help with the search in the nearby area. Now, a 22 caliber bullet was dug out of the dirt beneath Patricia's body, but no murder weapon was ever located. But on May 31st, 1960, at 11 p.m., Sharon Kinney was arrested for Patricia Jones's murder. Now, in addition to Patricia's murder, the Jackson County Sheriff also requested that prosecutors consider charging her with second degree murder of James Kinney. Okay. So they're coming back around again. So police knew that the gun used to kill James Kenny was not the weapon that had murdered Patricia Jones, as they still had it in their evidence locker. They also didn't find any registered guns in Sharon's name, because remember, the friend had to change it to somebody else's. Mm-hmm. Now, that was until the man who had secretly bought the twenty-two caliber pistol for Sharon did come forward, oh, and he told police that he had purchased the gun at Sharon's request at the beginning of May. So police got the warrant and searched Sharon's home, but once again, were unable to locate the firearm. What they did find was an empty box that they believed held the murder weapon at one time. Now, when questioned, Sharon first told police that she had lost the weapon on her trip to Washington State in early May. In her next version, she said that the gun had just disappeared. So Walter Jones was taken into custody on June 2nd, 1960 as a material witness. A material witness warrant allows authorities to arrest and detain an individual that holds information that is, quote, material to criminal proceedings. And if it is shown that they may become impracticable to secure the person's presence by a subpoena, unquote. So this basically is saying you're going to show up and you're going to testify. In all fairness, I don't know if Walter Jones would not have shown up, but they did arrest him on a material witness warrant. And he was released that same day on $2,000 bond. So that's just a little more added incentive to show up and testify. Dr. Hugh Owens conducted Patricia's autopsy and recovered one of the three bullets embedded in her body. Now, Dr. Owens would be criticized by the police and the prosecutors who felt that a thorough job was not done, especially with testing Patricia's stomach contents. Now, Dr. Owens claims that the undertaker was to blame as they had prior to Dr. Owens' autopsy had basically prepared her body for burial. So any chemical tests on her stomach would have been futile. Mm. So I'm not sure why that happened, because usually 
my understanding is, you know, the coroner has to do their autopsy, then the body's released for burial. And it sounds in this case, for whatever reason, that got flip-flopped. So Dr. Owens did note that he did not see any apparent food in Patricia's stomach during his examination. So on June 17, 1960, Patricia Jones's body was exhumed with the permission of her family. Now, this was an attempt to collect any remaining bullet fragments that could be found and to get any tissue samples and stomach contents that may have remained. So on July 11, 1960, Sharon Kinney was arraigned on murder charges and denied bail. However, on July 18th, the Kansas City Court of Appeals would grant Sharon bail, and she was freed on $24,000 bond. Now, in today's money, that's a little over $240,000. So Sharon's trial for Patricia's murder was delayed in getting started due to her late stage of pregnancy. And Sharon gave birth to a baby girl, Maria Christine, on January 16, 1961. Sharon Kenny was 21 years old. So three kids, which is not uncommon back then to have kids young, but to be tried for murder. And this child really was a pregnancy, a legitimate yes. pregnancy. And this was Walter's, right? Or no? I don't know. They never said. <laughs> you assume it could be, but could. Sharon also slept with a lot Who of different knows? guys. Oh, oy vey. So Sharon would be tried separately for Patricia and James's murder. On June 13, 1961, jury selection began for Patricia's trial with an all-male jury being selected. Both the prosecution and defense focused on Patricia's time of death, which each giving the jury a different timeline. Lieutenant Harry Nesbitt, chief of detectives, testified that Sharon had actually told him that she felt Walter was slipping away from her, even though she offered him more financial security due to James's life insurance policy. Walter also testified that he had attempted to end the relationship with Sharon after she told him she was pregnant with his child. So prosecutors would rest their case on June 21st after calling 27 witnesses. The defense only called 14 witnesses and took less than two days to get through all of them. Their focus was to break down the prosecution's claim of jealousy as a motive and having the means such as access to the firearm that killed Patricia. Sharon Kenny did not testify on her own behalf. Now the jury took less than one hour to deliberate and came back with a verdict of not guilty. Wow. It had been reported that upon the verdict being read, applause broke out in the courtroom. One juror, Ogden Stevens, even asked Sharon Kinney for her autograph after the judge released the courtroom. And this is a picture you can find. It's in the show notes. One of the various articles I have in there, there is a picture showing her and this guy getting her autograph. However, Sharon Kinney was not a free woman. She was taken into custody and jailed that same day to await the trial for her husband's murder. Now, on January 8, 1962, Sharon went on trial for James's murder. The prosecution decided not to seek the death penalty, and a jury of 11 men and one woman was seated to hear her case. Former lover John Boltz took the stand as a prosecution witness. He was to testify as to his conversation with Sharon, offering him money to kill her husband. Boltz should have been a strong witness for the prosecution, as he had been during the grand jury proceedings. However, this time around, he testified that he thought Sharon had only been joking when she had made that offer. Whoa. Also presented as evidence at trial were Sharon's lifestyle choices, mainly her sleeping around with other men, to kind of put it plain and simple. According to the prosecution, Sharon knew of James's life insurance policy, and if she granted him a divorce, she wouldn't be able to collect on any of that. The defense focused on the fact that James's death was ruled an accidental homicide initially. They also attacked Boltus's testimony, claiming that he was, quote, just a poor mixed up kid who would sign anything, unquote. 
They also presented evidence from witnesses about guns being left around the house within Dana's reach and that she often pretended to be playing with guns. Three days later, on January 11, 1962, the jury deliberated five and a half hours before reaching a verdict of guilty. Wow. Afterwards, one juror told reporters that Sharon's morals hadn't even been considered and none of them knew that she had been previously tried for murder. Sharon Kinney was formally sentenced in April 1962 to life in prison. She was 22 years old. Now, even after being sentenced for the murder of their son, James's parents stood by Sharon. They didn't believe their daughter-in-law could commit murder. Sharon, when asked by reporters about the verdict, replied that she regretted being, quote-unquote, enthusiastic when a woman had been seated on the jury. Now, Sharon attempted to get release on bond the following week after she was sentenced. Judge Tom Stubbs reprimanded her attorney for even attempting such a thing, as they knew there was no bond once someone was convicted of murder, so motion denied. However, Sharon would not be in prison long when in March 1963, the Missouri Supreme Court reversed Sharon's conviction and ordered a new trial. Her conviction was overturned on a technicality due to her defense being denied adequate preemptory challenges during jury selection. So because remember I said they weren't going for a death penalty case, apparently you have to have different size jury pools depending on if you're going for the death penalty or you're not going for the death penalty. So I'm not a lawyer, but that's the way I read it. And because they weren't going for the death penalty, they should have had more or less jurors to choose from and they didn't. Okay. So that is why she got her conviction reversed. Well, she's lucky. (laughs) Or just wait. So in July 1963, Sharon was released on $25,000 bond, which was posted by her brother, Eugene. So on March 23rd, 1964, Sharon, now 24, stood trial for the second time for her husband's murder. This time, Judge Paul Carver presided with once again an all-male jury being selected. This trial didn't even start when a mistrial was declared days later. (laughs) I don't know if this woman's lucky or what, but the court discovered that one of the jurors who was seated had retained a lawyer who was the law partner of the prosecutor, Lawrence Gepford. So due to this conflict of interest, another trial would be scheduled. Which is another technicality, really, because I'm sure he didn't do that intentionally or that I could see that happening by mistake. So on June 29th, 1964, Sharon's third trial for her husband's murder (laughs) began. This time, the prosecutor, Donald Mason, notified the court at jury selection that he did intend to seek the death penalty. And once again, Boltus testified. And like the first trial, he downplayed Sharon, offering him $1,000 to kill her husband. He did offer a new bit of information this time around, however. Boltus told the jury that Sharon had asked him not to tell police about her offer. Sure. Okay. So the prosecution entered into evidence the precious Tomcat letters. Oh, God. That's what they called them. It's a horrible name. So these letters were written between Sharon Kenny and another female inmate, Margaret Hopkins. The two had shared a cell for about eight months while incarcerated in the Jackson County Jail. And the two were said to have an intimate relationship and had even entered into a handwritten, quote unquote, marriage contract. It was at the end of one of these letters that Sharon had asked Margaret to go to her grandmother's house and acquire a 22 caliber pistol that she had hidden in the wall by the fireplace. 
So the police had searched Sharon's grandmother's home at 300 Fuller Street, but no gun was found. And it would be some time later and after Sharon's current trial that authorities would learn that they had searched the wrong home. Oh, my word. You see, Sharon's grandmother had moved and the home that they had searched was her new residence, <sighs> not her old residence where she was living at the time Sharon had requested and read yeah. that. Yeah. So another new addition was Sharon deciding to take the stand in her own defense. And Sharon stuck to her story and claimed her innocence, testifying that it was Dana who had pulled the trigger, accidentally killing her father. She also testified that both Boltus and Hopkins, well, they were lying. And the jury went into deliberations. But in the end, they were hopelessly deadlocked, seven to five, in favor of acquittal. Uh. A second mistrial was declared. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Sharon was scheduled for her fourth trial in October 1964. However, in September, she decided to travel to Mexico with her new love interest, Francis Samuel Piglusi. Piglusi is described as a nomad hairdresser, blacksmith, and con artist. And I think that is quite a description. <laughs> Put that on an epitaph. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what is a nomadic hairdresser? But okay. So Sharon left her three children in the hands of James's parents and took off traveling under the name of Jeanette Piglusi, Francis's wife. The two planned to marry in the city of Palaces, also known as Mexico City. Mm. Now, you may be wondering, did Sharon have permission to leave the state or even the country for that matter? And the answer is somewhat. Oh, the authorities did not prohibit her from leaving the state at the time. I think how the laws were written. However, the legal terms of her bond did. Sharon had to get written permission by the bond issuer, which she didn't bother to do. So after crossing the border, the couple registered for a room at the Hotel Gin as husband and wife. Now, Sharon said she felt unsafe in Mexico, so she brought a pistol with her and other firearms when they crossed the border. <laughs> so on September 18th, 1964, Sharon left the hotel without Piglusi one evening. Now, there are various versions as to the reason why. Some say it was to get money as the couple was running low, and others say she went to get some medication she needed to take. Whatever the reason, Sharon ended up at the Del Drado Hotel Bar, and that is where she encountered Mexican-born American citizen Francisco Paredes Ordanes. Sharon and her new friend went back to his hotel room, presumably to look at some photographs Francisco wanted her to show her. Sure. I was like, oh, okay. That's how it starts. Sharon would later claim that she actually needed someone who spoke Spanish to help her secure the medication she needed, and that Francisco was willing to do so. However, he took her back to her hotel room. So I'm not sure where the photographs came in. That was in one article I had researched. And Sharon would tell police that as soon as Francisco shut the door, he made sexual advances towards her. Sharon, feeling unsafe and fearful, fired on Francisco to protect herself. And she would later claim to authorities she only meant to scare him, but struck him in the chest instead. A hotel employee, Enrique Martinez Ruda, heard the shots, and when he lit himself in the room to inquire what was going on, he was also fired upon, taking a bullet to the shoulder. Now, having enough wits about him, Enrique shut the door, locked it, and called the police. So the police quickly arrived and took Sharon into custody and got her statement. They didn't believe Sharon's version of events and theorized that she had gone out that evening to rob someone, and Francisco was her mark and victim. Sharon Kinney was arrested and charged with homicide attempted robbery, and assault with a deadly weapon. So upon searching Sharon's purse, they also found the murder weapon and a cartridge of bullets. They also searched the couple's hotel room at the Hotel Gin. In the couple's room, police discovered more weapons and ammunition. 
Peglusi was also taken into custody and charged with entering Mexico illegally and carrying unlicensed firearms. So when authorities in Missouri heard about Sharon's arrest and the discovery of the 22 pistol, they wanted that gun. Assistant Jackson County Prosecutor Don Mason flew to Mexico to retrieve it, but Mexican authorities would not release it because they needed it for their own case. However, they gave Mason the bullets fired from the weapon for testing. Turned out that those bullets matched the ones taken from Patricia Jones's body in 1960. Sharon Kinney had the murder weapon in her possession, or at least in Grandma's wall, the whole time. Since she had been tried and found not guilty, she could not stand trial again for Patricia's murder due to double jeopardy being attached. Mm-hmm. Both Sharon and Paglusi were arraigned on charges. However, Paglusi was cleared of his charges and deported back to the United States prior to the start of Sharon's trial. Sharon went on trial in the summer of 1965. She was 25 years old at this time. On October 18th, she was convicted of murder and sentenced to a 10-year prison term. Sharon might have been taken by surprise at the verdict due to her track record with murder (laughs) trials and thinking that maybe she might just receive probation and then be deported back to the United States. Right. The Mexican media that had covered Sharon's trial nicknamed her La Pistolera, the gunfighter. And that name would stick when she entered prison. Side note, she is also known as the Black Widow of Missouri. So Sharon appealed her sentence, thinking it might get overturned as, hey, it's happened before. A U.S. Embassy employee who had visited Sharon would later tell reporters that Sharon said, I've shot men before and managed to get out of it. However, this time, the three-judge panel that made up the Superior Court upheld her conviction, although they did overturn her attempted robbery conviction and then lengthened her sentence to 13 years, feeling 10 years was just too lenient. I'm not sure what three extra years do (laughs) because I was like, oh, they lengthened it. Oh, by three years. So for a little less than five years, Sharon served her sentence. But on December 7th, 1969, Sharon, now 30 years old, failed to show up for the 5 p.m. roll call. Prison officials noted the no-show, but didn't seem too concerned until she failed to show up for the second roll call around 9 p.m. Still, prison officials didn't notify Mexican authorities or their supervisors until 2 a.m. Very chill about it. I guess so. (laughs) A manhunt was arranged focusing on those areas north of the prison, thinking Sharon would either head to the home of a former inmate she had grown close to behind bars or trying to cross the U.S. border. The FBI was notified of Sharon's escape and assisted in monitoring any border crossings. Authorities had various theories of how Sharon had escaped, and these are all the ones I've read they're not quite sure. One was she had bribed a prison guard or had squeezed herself through an unguarded window. Another is that she had enlisted the help of a Mexican policeman that she may have been dating. Yet another was that she disguised herself as a man and walked right out the prison gates. It is said the night of her escape, there was an electrical outage at the prison for a short period of time. I read that in one article, too. So the most popular theory, though, is that members of the Ordonez family helped her escape, only to have later killed her. (laughs) So regardless of the theories, Sharon Kenny was nowhere to be found. On December 18th, the Mexican Secret Service and the Mexico City District Attorney's Office made a public announcement that they were no longer involved in the search for Sharon Kenny. By that time, there was speculation that Sharon may have actually crossed the border into Guatemala and could have traveled south into South America. Keep in mind, Sharon didn't speak Spanish prior to entering prison, but her time behind bars, she spoke it fluently. So if you think about that, if she would have crossed into Guatemala, 
Central America and then into South America, the theory is she could have, you know, easily gone into like Argentina, where they have a very English speaking, Spanish speaking population, especially after World War Two, when they had all the Europeans settling there. So she could have easily acclimated into that society. Knew enough to get by. So when Sharon failed to appear for the fourth trial back in the United States in October 1964, a warrant was issued for her arrest. However, authorities knew where Sharon was at that time because she was serving time in a Mexican prison. Still, the warrant stood. And it still stands today. Sharon also has another warrant, one from Mexico. Mexican authorities issued a warrant should Sharon ever be apprehended so that she could return to prison and serve only her remaining time. Believe it or not, escaping from a Mexican prison at that time was not considered a crime. Wow. You didn't get additional time. Well, I mean, while the prison guards aren't really checking, you don't make it to roll call. It's all pretty chill. It is pretty loose. (sighs) So Sharon Kenny holds the record for having the longest outstanding warrant for murder in Kansas City, Missouri's history. In addition, she holds one of the longest felony arrest warrants in the history of the United States. If Sharon Kenny is still alive, she would be 83 years old today. And that is the story of La Pistolera. Sharon Kenny. She spent the 50s getting dudes. She spent the 60s in and out of trials and prisons. And then who knows what after that? Mm-hmm. Who, who knows if she's alive? You don't know. <sighs> Make sure you check out the resource section. I did put in a lovely Unsolved Mystery original Robert Stack episode Ooh. from YouTube I found. Um, There was a book written about this case, Just an Ordinary Girl. I believe it's written by Robert Hayes. So, And that quote comes from she was interviewed while she was in waiting for her trial, I believe, in Mexico. And she was just telling reporters, I'm just an ordinary girl <laughs> with a history of murder. Yeah. Ordinary girls don't don't do all these things, Sharon. Right. They usually don't go for married men. Time after time, tell them they're pregnant, try to get money from them, kill them when they're unhappy, kill their kill their wives. Yeah, she was also on an episode, or I think this case was covered on an episode of Deadly Women, Candace DeLong. Love her. She, former FBI profiler, she just said, you know, Sharon's a sociopath and was addicted to the kill. She feels that that first time her husband's murder, which you know, more falls on her than her daughter. She just used her daughter as an excuse that she got a thrill from that. Yeah. And then there was Patricia. And then now also, you know, these people are a means to the end. I want Walter. You're in my way. I'm going to get rid of you. I need money. You know, I've tried to rob you. You're not giving it to me. I'm going to end you. She started young. Young. Very young. That's the whole thing about this case that really I had to keep going back. I'm like, wait, how old is she? Wait, how old is she? <laughs> Still a baby. I mean, really? I mean, even on the run at 30. I mean, that's not that old. And she, I assume all her, her children were raised by other family then. I believe so. I could not find anything on her children. So well, and they deserve privacy after going through having a mom like that. Correct. Grief. So there you go. That is the episode of Sharon Kenny La Pistolera. We hope you've enjoyed it. I sure did. Okay. That was that was a roller coaster, <laughs> wasn't it though? <laughs> so we hope you've all enjoyed this episode. And if you have, again, tell someone about it or drop us a line and let us know what you think. Or if you're Sharon Kenny, turn yourself in. <laughs> Like we always end the episode, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like the gentleman who came forward and said, yes, I bought her a weapon. And yes, I registered it under someone else's name. So they knew she had a weapon. They just could not find that weapon. So we want you to be safe out there. 
we also need to look out for one another and to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.